So uh, welcome everybody, I'm Pastor Steve, and uh, welcome to our time talking about God with us and what that means. So let's pray. Yahweh, we welcome you to be with us in this moment, with our minds, our emotions, our hearts, our bodies, our relationships in this place, this space, this time, as we are together. Dwell among us and help us to grasp and experience you with us in this time. Welcome. Amen. So, we, uh, we've been doing a series on the books of Moses, Genesis through where we just finished the Ten Commandments, God's ten words, God's vision for his people, and we're now moving on to the next piece, which is the tabernacle. So Yahweh present among his people, or the creator moves into the neighborhood. And like, what kind of house would the creator pick if he was going to move into your neighborhood? Or maybe he'd want to design his own and pick his own colors and figure out the floor plan and design exactly what kind of furniture he wanted. And it might have to be a little bit special if he was going to move into your neighborhood. But why would he move into the neighborhood? And who is Yahweh anyway? Who is the creator? Who is God? And what would we know about him if we got to visit his house? What would we uh, learn about who God is from visiting his house? So um, question for you, what does God with us mean? And so what? So think about that for a minute. Turn to somebody next to you and give them your best guess. Well, what, do you, what does it mean to you that God is with us? If God was with us, what difference would that make? So anybody got, a, got something they want to tell us? What, what does it mean to you that God is with us? What difference would that make if Yahweh moved into the neighborhood? Yeah, Andy. Partnership. Okay, good. Somebody else? Yeah. Love beyond measure. Okay, great. Yeah, and so we have been looking at Exodus, the Exodus rescue, God's power and provision. So that starts with um, this great story that we're all so familiar with, with Moses and the plagues and all that stuff. And we, we went through that in a, in a, a lot of detail, and then we st their provision as they were in the wilderness. So it's through 15 where they get delivered, and then there's these chapters about the the um, wilderness and how God provides for them and guards them against and so forth. So we get God's power and provision and protection. And then there's the Sinai covenant, God's principles. We looked especially at the Ten Commandments or God's ten visions for his, his vision for his people. 
in 10 words. And um, we looked at those particular words. And um, then the Book of the Covenant gives some detail of that just after that. So that, that's Exodus 19 to 24. And I don't know if you guys remember, how many of you remember when we used to have the Ten Commandments sort of up here in Hebrew? Now, a few of us, this, this was a synagogue, you know, and there used to be a, a big panel there. They took the gold lettering in Hebrew off, but uh, they uh, left the shadow of it, and we had a cross there. And uh, that was a place where the Torah, the Ark, was contained. We're going to talk a little bit more about that. But the next thing is God's, the tabernacle. God's presence. So now when it comes, the architects in the, in the community love this part. Uh, a lot of the rest of us are like, wow, we went from an action movie with plagues and deliverance and driving chariots through the Red Sea into blueprints and details of lampstands. And God spent 15 chapters on the whole story of getting out of Exodus and then he spends 15 chapters on blueprints? Why would he spend 15 chapters giving details of the furniture he wants in his house? And what color he wants it? Now, some of you ladies, I know you're, no, not just ladies, but, uh, uh, ooh. I get into some of those discussions with people who are much more detail-oriented than I am. And I'm like, oh, wow, we're talking about curtains again. Um, but this is about curtains. What color God wants the curtains in his place? And what kind of embroidery he wants in them? And he's, he's into this. Um, so why does he spend 15 chapters talking about details of a tent? Um, good question. Do we have a, can we cue up that video? Um, so we're going to give a little overview. And this is, uh, I hope you got this when you came in, in your, in your bulletin. And we also gave you another one. This is more for study later um, because we're going to do this series through this month of Advent as we're talking about God with us. So this one, and there's some sermon notes based on the back. This one, you can read those details later, all right, for, for next time. So no, don't read them now. Um, but, but this one, we're going to read to you right now in a video. So, uh, and this, by the way, is from the Africa Study Bible. We forgot to put the copyrighted material, should say Africa Study Bible or new, new, um, NLT Study Bible. Um, so, you got that video to go? All right, let's, let's do it. This is from the Bible Project. The Book of Exodus. In the first video, we explored chapters 1 through 18, which tell the foundational story of how God rescued the enslaved Israelites by confronting and defeating Pharaoh, while offering a way of escape through the blood of the Passover lamb. God then delivered his people by bringing them through the waters of the sea and then into the wilderness, where, surprisingly, they grumbled and complained. Now, the second half of the book of Exodus opens as Moses leads Israel to the foot of Mount Sinai, where God invites the nation of Israel to enter into a covenant relationship. And here we reach another key moment in the biblical storyline, because this is picking up and developing God's promise to Abraham. So remember, from the book of Genesis, God promised that through Abraham's family, somehow he would restore his blessing to all of the nations. And here we find out more. God says that if Israel obeys the terms of the covenant. They will be so shaped by God's laws and teaching and justice that they will become a kingdom of priests, which means that they will become God's representatives and show all of the other nations what God is truly like. 
Now the people of Israel eagerly accept the offer, and so God's presence appears right on the top of Mount Sinai in the form of cloud and lightning and thunder. And Moses goes up as their representative, and God opens with the basic terms of the covenant, the famous Ten Commandments. These are like the basic terms of the agreement, how the Israelites and God are going to relate to each other. And then after this come another collection of commands which fill out the first ten in more detail. There are laws about Israel's worship, about social justice, how they are to live together, all shaping Israel into a nation of justice and generosity that's different from the other nations. So Moses writes down all of these laws and he brings them down to the people who again eagerly agree to enter into this covenant with God. And once they do so, God takes the relationship forward another step. He tells Moses Moses that he wants his holy and divine and good presence to come and dwell right in the midst of Israel, which develops another aspect of God's covenant promises. So remember, after humanity's rebellion in the garden, it was access to God's presence that was lost. But now it's through the family of Abraham that God's presence is becoming once again accessible through this covenant relationship, and first with Israel, and then somehow one day to all nations. So what follows are seven chapters of detailed architectural blueprints about this sacred tent called the tabernacle. There's an outer courtyard with an altar, and then in the center there's a tent that has an outer room and then an inner room. And then inside the inner room, which is called the most holy space, is a golden box called the Ark of the Covenant. And there's angelic creatures over the top of it. It's the hot spot of God's presence. Now there's lots of detail in these chapters, and it's important to know that every piece has some kind of symbolic value. All of the flowers, the angels, the gold and the jewels, it all echoes back to the Garden of Eden, the place where God and humans live together in intimacy. And so the tabernacle is like a portable Eden, so to speak. It's the place where God and Israel can live together in peace, at least in theory, because right here something goes really, really wrong. Israel breaks the covenant. As Moses is up on the mountain receiving the blueprints for the tabernacle, down below at the camp, the Israelites, they're losing patience. And so they ask Moses' brother Aaron to make for them a golden calf idol so they can worship it as the God who saved them out of slavery in Egypt. Now God's presence, it's right there on top of the mountain, they can see it. But here they are below, breaking the first two commands of the covenant they just agreed to. No other gods and no idols. Now what follows is really important. God knows what's happening down below. And so he first invites Moses into his own anger and pain. And he tells Moses what he wants to do, just to wipe Israel out. But Moses intercedes by appealing to God's character. He says, first of all, destroying Israel would be going back on your covenant promises to Abraham. And then Moses appeals to God's reputation among the nations. What would they think if they see you destroying your own people? And so God accepts Moses' intercession and he relents. And while he does bring his judgment on those who instigated the idolatry, he forgives the nation as a whole and promises to renew his covenant. And it's right here at this point in the story that God, for the first time, describes his own character to Moses. He says, the Lord is merciful, he's gracious, he's slow to anger, abounding in covenant faithfulness. He forgives sin, 
but he will not leave the wicked unpunished. So we have this tension. God is full of mercy, but also he must deal with evil if he claims to be good. And above all, God is faithful to his promises, even though it means he knows he's committing himself to a people who are utterly faithless. And so after renewing the covenant with Israel, God commissions Moses to go ahead and build the tabernacle. And once again, we get five long chapters describing in detail the construction of the tabernacle. And it all comes together in the final chapter where the tabernacle's finished. God's glorious divine presence comes and hovers over the tent and our hopes are high. And so Moses, he goes right up to enter into the tent and he can't. He actually can't go in And that's how the book ends. It's really surprising, but not really if you think about it. You can see now how much Israel's sin has damaged the relationship with God in more ways than we realized. So the book opened, remember, with Pharaoh's evil threatening Israel and threatening God's covenant promise. But now as the book ends, Israel has become its own worst enemy. It's their sin that's threatening the future of the covenant. And so the question as the book closes is how is God going to reconcile this conflict between his holiness and his goodness and his presence with the sinful corruption of his own covenant people? The solution to that problem is what the next book is about. But for now, that's the book of Exodus. So we'll get to the next book too, Leviticus. Um, But I want you to see that this is not... A So let, let me read a quick paragraph from the New, New Living NLT Study Bible. God rescues his people and calls us into a life of holiness in order that we may have a living, personal relationship with him. The tabernacle chapters are not an add-on. They are what the Exodus was all about. Do you remember when we got at the beginning and, and, and Moses was telling Pharaoh, let my people go so they may worship me in the desert? At the time it seems like is this just like a, a fake thing? Like he's saying, you know, we're just going to go have a worship service. Haha, <laughs> never coming back. No, that is the point. The point was for them to go worship him in the desert. The point of all that rescue was to go worship God and meet him in the desert. Yes, God would keep his promise of taking the people to the promised land, but his goal was for them to live in his presence without being destroyed by his holiness. And that is what happened. Salvation is not merely the forgiveness of sins. God's goal for us is that having been rescued from the bondage of sin, we might live daily in the glory of his presence and manifest his holy character. So we have this tension of a God who wants to live with us, but who's so holy and powerful and amazing, and we are so sinful that his presence would destroy us. So how can God move into the neighborhood without destroying us in our sinfulness? Because our rebellion messed things up. Um, So God, the creator, is present again with his people, like he was at at the beginning. Now, in order to get a feel for this, I think we have to think about who God is. And the tabernacle actually helps us think about who God is. But let's, let's think about, okay, there is a God created the universe, right? He's the creator. Now, for us, the sun is everything that gives all the energy, all the life and light to our earth, right? But the sun, we only receive one billionth 
of the sun's energy. And the sun has to be 93 million miles away from us so we can handle it, right? But we get a billionth of the sun's energy. And the sun actually is one of 100 billion stars in the Milky Way. But of course, the Milky Way is only one of 10 billion galaxies. So then in 1998, okay, let me back up here. Do you remember when Rick Matson was here and he talked about, I had a discussion on Facebook, like 100 posts with a friend of mine from, from, uh, from high school. And all my other friends were, were watching there. He was saying, I only believe in things that I can observe with my, with my senses or that science has discovered. I only believe in things that science has discovered. And remember Rick Matson said that's kind of like demanding that the postmaster only put things through my mail slot. God, you can only reveal things to me if they fit in my science slot or my five senses slot. Anything else? I'm not opening the door. Don't put any packages out there. I don't care. Right? You're going to miss all your Christmas presents that way. Um, the point is, and here's what's really kind of amazing. So in 1998, NASA sent this Hubble Space Telescope up, and they were discovering things. And what they found out, if, if I'd had the discussion in 95 with my friend 20 years ago, um, he would have said, only what science knows. Well, what they found out was the universe was not the way they thought it was. They figured when you throw a ball up, it's got to slow down at least and probably come back down again. So the universe must be slowing, but it wasn't. It's speeding up. So they're like, wait a second. How? That means there's a whole bunch that we never knew about. So this is from NASA. We know how much dark energy, they call it dark not because it's evil, but because they don't know anything about it. It's all a mystery. It's this mystery that they just discovered. We know how much dark energy there is because we know how it affects the universe's expansion. Other than that, it's a complete mystery. Roughly 68% of the universe is dark energy. Dark matter makes up about 27%. The rest, everything ever observed with all of our instruments, all normal matter, adds up to less than 5% of the universe. So everything we've ever observed or science has ever discovered is 5%. And 20 years ago, we just discovered, oh, that was less than 5%. And there's a whole much else that's out there that we don't know. And that is just what God created. But he is the creator of it all. So there's a whole, imagine who God is. Now, there's some stuff, you know, scientists tell me this stuff, I don't, you know, like atoms and all that stuff. Whatever, who was that? You know, I've never seen an atom. You believe in atoms? I don't believe in atoms. But Yahweh created all matter and energy and mystery. Yahweh was present with the people in the beginning. He was, there was the tree of life they could eat from. They're, he, they were walking in the garden with him. Tree of knowledge of good and evil. They were supposed to not touch, but they said, you know what? I know better. I can figure it out. I can figure out what's right and wrong. Ten commandments, whatever. I like some of them. Might even do nine. Um, but the rebellion leads to separation from God. So they leave the garden. They're separated from God. Now, here's what I want you to think about the glory of God. So, you know, I don't believe in atoms until somebody does this. So this is the, the Tsar bomb from the Russians, the biggest one that ever exploded. 50, it, was, it was actually wiped out houses for 100 miles. And then, it, you know, broke windows in Finland and Norway and, was, and three times around the earth they could feel the reverberation of it. Fortunately, that was the last one. Um, I don't believe in atoms until it shows up. And here's God, this is what I want you to think about when you think about God's presence coming down on top of Mount Sinai. 
because they were scared to death by the fire and the power and the storm that was on Mount Sinai. Think about watching this on top of Mount Sinai, okay? The glory of God. God, so when we think of glory, we think this kind of, the glory really means weightiness and substantialness. And God's glory is him saying, it's like us saying, what's an atom? Oh, that's what atoms are. That's what happens when you put two together or split them apart. And that's what fuels the sun all the time. But we, we've managed to divide some, right? But uh, we haven't managed to really figure out how to contain the energy that's in the sun. So what does holiness mean? And why would the temple be constructed the way it is? I think this gives us a little analogy too. So we've, this is a nuclear power plant, in case you uh, don't know what it is. So in a nuclear power plant, there's, there's some places where they have some reactions going on. This is just cooling towers. But those cars down there, um, there's some people that work in there, but they have to be very careful. This is super contained, multiple levels. You go anywhere near any of that, you've got to be specially suited so you can be holy so it doesn't kill you. Right? There's all this power there, and that's exactly what happens with God's holy presence, his unlimited power. He limits himself to this one spot, but it's got, it's got barriers. He comes into the holy of holies, and then there's the holy place around that, and then there's the outer courtyard, and the people have to stay away because they're sinful. And God's presence is there, and they have to go through this series of coming to the altar to sacrifice and being washed, and then to get anywhere near, and one time they go into God's presence. So this detailed plans direct from Yahweh. He speaks most of these 15 chapters. Yahweh chooses his floor plan, his designs, his colors. Yet it's similar to other temples at the time. It's contextualized, which means communicates in the context. So isn't it interesting that God chooses? So I've seen other temples in Israel that had a square and then a double square, a holy of holies and a holy place. So the Israelites, and God said this exactly, and yet he did it in a way that they would understand. You know what I'm saying? God put himself and his presence in ways that fit that context, that culture, so that people could understand who he was. So he was communicating something. And when Jesus came, he showed up just like a, any other first century you know, Israelite. So God communicates, and yet it's different in particular ways. For example, there's no idol. Why would you have all that temple and not have an idol in it? Where's the God? You made a whole temple, but you didn't put a God in it. Because there's no idol. One of the things it's saying is God cannot be manipulated. So they, they wanted to have God's presence. So they said, well, let's just make an idol so that God can be with us and we can decide what to do with this golden bull. They were remembering their Egypt experiences, most of us want to find some way that we can manipulate God. Pray prayers the right way or give offerings the right way or, or um, say Jesus' name loud enough or, or do the right thing so God will do what I want him to do. God will not be manipulated. They didn't get to decide what kind of house they wanted. He gave exactly the plans and said, you make it this way. These are my colors. These are what's supposed to be in the curtains. 
He made it exactly how he wanted it. And they obeyed and built him his house. It was a five senses experience. Now this is uh, a replica out in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. I saw one time. Um, it's not gold. It's just painted gold. But uh, this was the holy place. You can see the, the priest there. and the, There's a place for bread, kind of like this. And uh, a place, a lampstand, the menorah with, with light, kind of like you see on the ends of our pews here. Um, and there was an incense altar where, where everything was, there was incense always going up before the holy, the holy of holies, which was behind the curtain. Um, so this was a five senses experience. You ate meat that had been sacrificed. You smelt the burning flesh. And there was this incense. And there was, everything was anointed with special stuff. In fact, you know that there was a ton of gold in this, including threaded into the, the, the high priest's garment, they smashed out sheets of gold and cut it into strips so they could make those threads to thread in. A ton of gold in this place. And plus frankincense and myrrh, by the way. Uh, that might be why those guys bought gold, frankincense, and myrrh, however many of them there were. Um, but it was, it, was the, uh, it was a five senses experience. And yet, it was not an experience for the people it was, but it wasn't. So um, in let me compare how it is. So this sanctuary we have here was originally a synagogue, but it was not a temple or a tabernacle. So this, um, this part up here was originally, like I mentioned, there was the, the Ten Commandments were up here, and inside of this ark, this special place was where they called it an ark because they were taking off after the ark was where the scrolls were for the Torah, for Moses' five books. And they very carefully brought them out. You will notice that we have, in our rebuilding of it, um, made that a holy place. That's where Jesus is, the, well, the, the little clay depiction of the manger scene in Jesus right now, but as a place where God is. And you'll notice the, the cross as a place that, allows us to have the curtains. In fact, you know, when Jesus died, the temple that divided the holy place from the holy of holies was ripped in two. So I talked, I did a little interview with Carrie Kimmel, Liz Kimmel's husband, um, who designed a lot of this architecture. And he talked about how he saw this as the blasphemy of killing the Son of God and, and God ripping his garments like the high priest did, tearing the tent in two. And then these steps as the arms of God stretching out his love to us, to welcome us into his heart. So this, this place is designed around the ideas of that original tabernacle and the temple. And we have depictions of the Torah scrolls and the Ten Commandments and the, the menorah, the, the seven-branched candle stand on the ends of our, of our pews here. Um, but all of that was to get a picture of who is God. So this is the thing. It, it wasn't unlike this place. This place is built for us to worship God. And a synagogue is a gathering place for Jews. But this was not a gathering place for the Israelites. Only the high priest once a year got to go into the Holy of Holies. And only the priest got to go into the holy place. And they, the Israelites didn't ever enter into that tent of the tabernacle. They might have gotten into the surroundings to, to give their sacrifices, the, into the courtyard. 
but it was not a place for them to be. And the priests were not there for the people. You may think the pastors are here to serve the people so that we all learn or whatever, but the priests were there for God, to serve God. The, the food was there for God. The light was there for God. So who is God? Who is Yahweh? This shows that he was the creator. They talked about how it, it and that he's powerful, and that he's worthy, a ton of gold, expensive dyes. They had to crush like a thousand snails and a thousand grubs to get red and green a little bit of dye. There's a thousand, you know, this is expensive to get all that stuff, to make just a little bit of blue thread and a little bit of red thread and then make it and mix it with gold thread to, uh, to make all of this decoration. It was super expensive because God is worthy of everything. He's got expensive tastes when he's going to make a house. He's got it all, so why, why not? Um, but he's worthy of everything. He's holy. He's different. He's other than we. we. He has to be separated from us because of our sinfulness. He is beautiful. This was a beautiful place. This was a new creation, a new Eden, as I mentioned in the video. This, this place where, where the, the tree of life was gone, but this is a new, it's got all kinds of pomegranates and stuff on it. This is kind of a new tree of life, this branch, this lampstand with branches on it. The tree of life is now in the holy place again. And there's all this decoration from Eden. Beautiful carvings of created things. Seven times in this passage, it says, Yahweh said, make this. And it's the same word that talks about God creating, <clears throat> making things. Yahweh said, make it this way. And the seventh time, he said, keep the Sabbath. So this is, <clears throat> the literary structure is showing how this is a, a return to creation, a return to being in God's presence again a new creation, the restoration of God's presence with his people that has been gone because of sinfulness and yet making a way that they, he could be among them, a new tree of life and light. But this is the king, Yahweh's palace. This is not a place for the people. So this is just King Louis' palace, uh, which is now called the Louvre. I happen to see it in Paris. It's got a lot of nice things, you know, the Mona Lisa and some other nice little art stuff. Um, you know, actually some of the best art stuff in the world. And it's this huge palace made for the kings of France. And it's the, the center of probably one of the top tourist destinations in the world, I suppose. But this is a king's palace where he lives. So this, the Ark of the Covenant, was a place where inside of it they put what? The stone tablets. The constitution that says, I am your king. And the manna that showed his protection and the Aaron's rod that budded the life to show that, and this, on top of this, was called the mercy seat, the God where, where God would give mercy, where they'd sprinkle blood. And this was seen as the footstool of God's throne. God was present, at least his footstool, in, in that place. The elders, when they went up to do this covenant, they actually, they actually had a meal with God and saw, says he saw him, at least they saw the pavement and maybe his feet. Um, and God, it seemed like in, in verse 13 of chapter 19, it seemed like God wanted all the people to come into his presence. And they were like, no way! You see that? Nuclear explosion, fire, whatever. No, we're not going there. So he compromised and said, okay, we'll have uh, the priests go there. Did I shake something loose? Am I on? Okay. Um, so this is... King Yahweh's palace. And it is 
beautiful. And it is worthy of who he is. What's amazing is this beautiful palace is like the Louvre in a refugee camp. Remember, they just ran out of Egypt a couple months ago with whatever they could scrounge together. And yes, they took an offering for their neighbors before they left, so they had a little gold to put into this thing. But this is a refugee camp. These people are refugees from running away from a war with Pharaoh. And here in the middle of it is this place, this palace, the Louvre, beautiful, artistic palace for the king in the center of where they, it says that God is beautiful, that God is worthy. And then after they get it all according to his plan, the glory of God shows up and enters that holy place and God moves into the neighborhood. In the middle of these people, they're all arranged around it. God's presence is with them again. The creator has moved into the neighborhood. Is that just a little amazing? So Yahweh with us is an amazing theme through Scripture. In creation, as we said, there was Eden. They walked in the garden with the Creator, intimate discussions, but rebellion, doing things their way, led to sin and banishment. They were separated from God, and they had no access to God because of their sinfulness and rebellion. They were out of His presence. So this tabernacle is bringing His presence back. God comes down off of Mount Sinai and moves down among them. And he moves into a portable tabernacle. And when the cloud lifts, they move. So it's got also a symbol of, this is not a permanent place. We're going on to the promised land. But I'm walking with you in this tabernacle. And then in Jerusalem, so after several hundred years, they do the tabernacle. And then God allows Solomon to build a temple, which is basically the double the proportions of the, of the temple but more gold. And uh, this is a place where God is going to live, reside, the, the palace of the true king of Israel in the midst of the people. And then Jesus comes and picks up. Well, first of all, we have to remember that the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed. What an awful, terrible thing. They became so unjust that God moved out of the neighborhood. And let the Babylonians come and wipe out the tabernacle and take all that gold and the, tab and the, and the uh, lampstand away. And they were in exile, away from Jerusalem, away from God's presence, and trying to figure out where they were. And in that time is this longing, Oh, come. Oh, come, Emmanuel. Your exiled people. Ransom, captive Israel, who mourns in lowly exile here. Where are you? We've done wrong. And we all have that sense when we've sinned and we've separated ourselves from God of how we're banished by our own choice and rebellion from God's presence. And then all this prophecy that, but someday, but someday there will be a king like David, but someday there will be, and Jesus comes. And then I'm going to skip ahead. The next, the final thing is no New Jerusalem, which has no temple and no sun, because the Lamb of God 
and God, the Father, are the light. Everywhere present in the, the whole atmosphere is with God. It's Eden restored with a city around it. It's a garden inside of a city. And, but now, at this time, it's the church. So let's look ahead a little bit to this. So if you look at John 1, where, we, where John figures out, John tries to explain who Jesus used the, the image of the wisdom of the word of lo, the Logos. In the beginning, the word, in other words, Jesus, already existed. The word was with God, and the word was God. He existed in the beginning with God. God created everything through him, and nothing was created except through him. The word gave life to everything that was created, and his life brought light to everyone. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness can never extinguish it. So this talks about Jesus as the creator, as life, as light, shining in the darkness. And then in verse 14, <clears throat> I'll, get you, I'll give you two versions of this. John 1, 14, the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. He looked, we looked upon his glory, the glory of the one and only from the Father, full of grace and truth. They put the word tabernacle there because it uses the word from the Old Testament of the tabernacle. Jesus was God's new tabernacle. He pitched his tent among us. He moved into the neighborhood in his body. Jesus was present with people again. This is the NLT way of putting it. So the word became human and made his home among us. He was full of unfailing love and faithfulness. And we have seen his glory, the glory of the Father's one and only Son. He talked about the glory that descended on the tabernacle. Here's that glory tabernacling in Jesus. And what kind of God? Well, Moses got a glimpse of this kind of God. What kind of God? Then the Lord came down in a cloud and stood there with him, and he called out his own name, Yahweh. Yahweh passed in front of Moses, calling out, Yahweh, the Lord, the God of compassion and mercy. I am slow to anger and filled with unfailing love and faithfulness. I lavish unfailing love to a thousand generations. I forgive iniquity, rebellion, and sin, but I do not excuse the guilty. I lay the sins of the parents upon their children and grandchildren. The entire family is affected, even children in the third and fourth generations. So here we have this holy just God, who yet wants to be in communion and faithful, loving relationship with the people he created. How does that happen? How do we get that to happen? And that's what the tabernacle gave a sign of, and that's what we're going to do today. We get, Jesus comes to us in, the, in communion. This is, you know, this table is usually up there underneath in the, in the Holy of Holies, so to speak, in our place, the place where God's presence is with us. And yet, we don't use the kind of terms that some churches do. We don't call this an altar, and we don't talk about the... Uh, but this is a sacrifice. This is Jesus' sacrifice that made the way on the altar to enable us to get into God's presence, to be with him, to sacrifice. We're going to talk more about all of that later. I'm just giving the big picture. I said I'm not as into the details. I'm giving you the big picture today. But one other piece I want us to look at 
before we come to the table, before we are in God's presence, and that is that right now, according to Scripture, according to Paul, the church is the new temple. We, as God's people, are the place where God is residing. He always wanted to be with all of his people. But because they refused, he was just with the priests who were truly holy. But we are a new priesthood. God is with us. Paul says this in Ephesians 2. So now you Gentiles are no longer strangers and foreigners. Now, most of us are Gentiles. There might be a few Jews here. But most of us weren't part of this. You're no longer strangers and foreigners. You are citizens along with all of God's holy people. You are members of God's family. We're strangers. Become family. Um, a house of prayer for all nations. It's that prayer piece that gives us intimacy with God that makes this a special place. We're not just a collection of multicultural people. We're, this is a house of prayer that's for all nations. Together, we are his house, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. And the cornerstone is Christ Jesus himself. We are carefully joined together in him, becoming a holy temple for the Lord. Through him, you Gentiles also are also being, also being made part of this dwelling where God lives by his spirit. So God lives among us. We're being made into this temple that God can live among us. What kind of temple do we need to be? God's got a few instructions, some detailed plans for what kind of temple he wants us to be. What kind of a holy temple that we could contain his presence, that we could reveal his presence, that people could say, what's going on with those people? It's not really about this building. When we talk about the church now, it's not really about this building. Now, this is a special time when we get to be together and celebrate his presence and host his presence together. But it's us as a people. 1 Corinthians 3 says, don't you realize that all of you together are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God lives in you? God will destroy anyone who destroys this temple. For God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. Now he's talking, referring to those destroying through gossip and other things who are tearing down the people of God, the temple of God. He also says individually, in 1 Corinthians 6, for sexual immorality is a sin against your own body. Don't you realize that your body as an individual, your actual body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who lives in you and was given to you by God. You do not belong to yourself. Your body is not yours. For God bought you with a high price. The body of his own son. The death of his own son. So you must honor God with your body. So God wants us to be the kind of holy temple together and individually that can house his presence, the creator of the universe, that powerful, holy, beautiful God wants to live in you and in us. And he's made a way through his sacrifice to deal with the contamination and cleanse what's in our bodies, in our, in our lives, so that we can be that. And we get to celebrate that today. We get to celebrate all of that 
as we are together as his church. So let's come to the communion table if, the, if the, uh, those who are serving communion and the, and the worship team would come. So um, I hope you take both of these things home and, and uh, read them and get ready for the next three weeks um, when we're going to have more details from Pastor Ben and Annette and Andrew. Um, but today, big picture, God is present with us. He has chosen to give the sacrifice that enables us to enter into his presence, enables us to eat with him, the way those elders, just the elders, got to do, the way that just Moses and just the high priest got to, to enter into his presence and have him living among us. So let's, um, let's pray. And then move into this time. Lord, Yahweh, God, we are unable to comprehend who you are. We can't even begin to comprehend what you've made. Even if we pooled all of our knowledge, we have only a tiny percentage of understanding even what you made, much less who you are. And yet, you have chosen to reveal yourself, not just through your creation. You chose to speak to Moses, to the Israelites, and to us, to write down who you are, to, to make an experience of who you are. Thank you for giving us your word so that we can know more about you. Thank you for coming down to dwell with your people, even as sinful as we are. Thank you for coming in Jesus. Emmanuel, thank you for coming to be with us so we could see what you're like as you related to people, as you healed people, as you cast out demons, and as you sacrificed. Put your own body on the altar on that Passover so that we could be cleansed. So we can remember what you talked about with your followers that last supper, that last time you ate together before you made yourself the sacrifice. And today we celebrate that Passover together with you. We eat together with you and we don't even begin to comprehend what that is. But we thank you. And we ask you to show us who you are. We ask you to help us live as a people and as individuals to reflect your holiness, your justice, your compassion, your mercy, your goodness, your power, your creativity, your life and your light. May we radiate life and light. Your life, your light, you shine through us. We can't do any of that. We can try to weave some threads the right way so that you can display your glory among us. Now as we participate together, we ask you to be present. Help us to experience you as we taste your 
sacrifice. Amen. If you are not part of our body, um, you're not usually with us, but, but you have committed yourself, Yahweh is your king. You have made him that, and he is dwelling in you. You are welcome to partake with us in the table. Um, most of you don't have your kids with you, but it's up to you if your kids are going to participate. And um, when we pass these out, if you would each just hold them so that we can eat together and drink together. Thank you. Uh, this is gluten-free. I don't know what they did in the tabernacle, but that's gluten-free anyways.